Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There are Bibles. Sorry, there are Bibles at the end of the your rows of seats, and if you need one, pick it up and read it and take it home with you if you need it. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2 says Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your, from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last." Paul's longing to see the Thessalonians. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. If we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy." And we know that God will add his blessing to that reading of his word. One of my favourite movies is We Bought a Zoo with Matt Damon and Scarlett Johansson. And in this story, Matt Damon loses his wife and his son and daughter, along with him, decide to go and buy a new house. And so they travel around the countryside looking at a number of different properties, trying to decide on the one that they'll buy. And they finally fall in love with this really old property out on um, a big block out in the country and they decide to buy it. But it comes with a catch. And the catch is that it's a dilapidated zoo complete with the animals and a zoo-keeping staff. And so the movie is based on a true story 
and it's basically about them spending all their family's money doing up the zoo so that it can open again. In the course of the movie, after a rough start, Scarlett Johansson and the main zookeeper falls in love with Matt Damon, the new owner. At the same time, her junior assistant falls in love with Matt Damon's moody son, teenage son. In one of the final scenes at the grand opening of the zoo, uh, the two girls are just standing there in awe of what's happened and they're staring at their two men. And the kooky, crazy teenager girl says to Scarlett Johansson, if you had to choose real quick between animals and people, which would you choose? Now, throughout the movie, it seems like these two women, their, their main thing in life seems to be animals. They love animals. They're laying their life down for animals. They care about animals. It seems that animals are the most precious thing in their life. And so it's a legitimate question. If you had to choose real quick, which one would you take, animals or people? The camera pans in on Scarlett Johansson's face as she ponders the question, and then a big smile comes up on her face, and she says, people. And then the kooky teenager giggles, and she says, me too. People, I choose people. And it's a beautiful scene, and it's a really um, moving scene, and it reminds us that no matter how uh, important animals may be, people are precious. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul reminds us just how precious people are. He says that they're our hope, our joy, and our crown. And that's the title of today's message. If you missed last week, we started a new series um, called Progress. And we're going to be working our way through the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And we discovered last week that the letter to the Thessalonians was written by Paul with the support of Silas and Timothy, and it was addressed to this church in Thessalonica, which was a young but healthy church. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had visited there on Paul's second missionary journey, and their preaching resulted in many people coming to faith in Christ, and the result was a thriving, healthy church plant who were faithfully progressing in their following of Jesus. And so chapter 2 starts with Paul reminding the church that their visit to them was not without results. Now, I love the word results. It's the Greek word kenos, which means the opposite of fruitless. Now, I think for some churches, the word results is seen as a dirty word, maybe a corporate word or a business word, but not a biblical word. But here it is in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and it's clear that Paul doesn't view it that way. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. And last week we spoke about the difference between being an input person and an output person. Inputs and outputs are both really important. But it's outputs that show whether we're actually making a difference, and it's the output that will determine our fruitfulness. And so an input person is someone who will come and fulfill their roster, they'll do their duty, they'll tick the box, and they'll tell you all about it. But an output person is someone who is more concerned about the end results. Paul shows in this passage that outputs are important, and he reminds the people that their previous visit had results. Now, it seems like an understatement. Because if you look uh, at the background of this letter in Acts chapter 17, you'll see that Paul preached in Thessalonica, in the synagogue, reasoning from the scriptures, and it said many people came to faith in Christ. And so their visit resulted in Paul and his companions actually planting this church in Thessalonica. These are things we kind of dream of in ministry. If there were no results, we wouldn't be reading this letter thousands of years later. And so there was obvious fruit of their previous visit and of their ministry. Um, I've observed a lot of Christians over the years that spend a lot of time bragging about their faithfulness. And they'll say things like, we just 
we're just faithfully serving the Lord. And what they often mean is that they rock up the church and they sing some nice songs and they hear someone preach and they don't swear or do naughty things during the week and then they come back the next week and then they press repeat on that whole process over again. And they'll say things like, we're just being faithful, brother. Now, don't get me wrong, faithfulness is incredibly important. A couple of weeks ago, I highlighted this in a message on faith and I highlighted that one day those who are faithful will stand before Christ and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy what I've prepared for you. And so to be a faithful person is critical in the Christian life. We need to be people who hold on to God no matter what and are faithful in the way that we live. But my concern is this, that many people spend their whole lives constructing a wall of faithfulness that they can then hide behind to mask a lack of fruitfulness in their lives. Let me say that again. A lot of people spend their whole lives building this wall of faithfulness So they can hide behind it, masking a lack of fruitfulness in their lives. But as we look at scripture, it's clear that fruitfulness is also of great importance to Christ. Faithfulness and fruitfulness go hand in hand. They go together. If you remember chapter 1 last week of this letter, we read that their faith produced works. Their faithfulness outworked in fruitfulness. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that, Any tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, will be recognized by our fruit. And in John chapter 15, verse 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians was all about commending the church in Thessalonica for not only their faithfulness, but also their fruitfulness. We focused last week on verse 3 where Paul said, we remember before our God and Father, and then you might remember the three things. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these people were not just a faithful church, but they're also a fruitful church, and Paul commends them for that. And so chapter 1 is designed to commend this church, but in chapter 2, he moves from commending to defending. And Paul is defending not only his qualifications in ministry, but his motivations to share the gospel. It seems that since Paul left this church plant in Thessalonica, the Jews had been running a campaign to drag his name through the mud and to discredit him and to accuse him to these new converts of preaching with the wrong motives. Now, I've experienced something similar firsthand in my own life a number of years ago when I left the church, and I can tell you firsthand that it's painful And it's frustrating when your motives are questioned. And in this letter, Paul is actually setting the record straight. He's reminding them that their visit was fruitful. And so the question is, what was the fruit? Well, the fruit was the people receiving the letter. The fruit was people. The results were that people were saved and were now deeply rooted in the gospel. They were progressing in their faith. And so the rest of the chapter, Paul shows that his motivations were not impure or wrong, but rather driven by a deep love of the gospel and a deep love of people. I've heard many churches over the years that deliberately say things like, we as a church don't want to grow big. We want to be a small church. And then they'll attach to that mentality a sort of a sentence that says something like, it's not about numbers. And I've got to say that I've never really understood that. And I've always got question marks about a church like that. And the question mark is this, what happens when you get to your limit? 
If you've limited your church at 25 and then you happen to connect with someone at your workplace or in your family or in your friendship circle and they come to know Jesus and they want to join your church, what do you do? Do you stand at the door and say, ah, 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 we've reached our quota, go to hell? Oh, is that what you say? Oh, I've never really understood it. I think it's a pathetic, selfish, insipid vision for a church. Do you know there's a whole book in the Old Testament called Numbers? And it starts by listing a census done for the nation of Israel, and it lists all the tribes and all the names, and it outlines all the numbers. Right throughout the Old Testament, people are consistently numbered and named. And even in the New Testament, when you come to key moments, like Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and Peter gets up and he preaches this powerful sermon, it says 3,000 people were added to that number that day. They were added to their number that day. Now, what would happen if you had determined that your church was going to be 30? Can you imagine Peter getting down from the pulpit and saying, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, we're going to cap this thing at 30. So 30 of you, come over here, just stand there. Now, 2,970, come over here, all right? Now, you guys, you're going to be our church. We're going to be comfortable and we're going to get to know each other. It's going to be awesome and and we're just going to stick at the 30. Now, you guys, just push off. That would make no sense, would it? That would be crazy. Because numbers are important. Why? Because numbers are people. And people are precious to God. People often ask me the question, do you want and expect follow to keep growing? And and I think sometimes it's a trick question. I go, the answer seems so obvious. Maybe they're trying to trap me somehow. Is this a trick question? And then when I realise it's not, I say, well, of course. Of course I want and expect and hope and pray that this church would continue to grow. Why? Because there are thousands of people right around us in the houses that right now are separated from God, and so I'm desperate to grow. I'm desperate to see many of those people come to know Jesus Christ, to come to the point of putting their faith in Him and growing in their faith. And I believe with all of my heart, God has placed us here in the officer region, not by accident, but by design, and He actually wants to use us, believe it or not, to reach people in our community that don't know Christ. And I'm excited about that. And I make no apologies about that whatsoever. And so for that reason, I'll be disappointed if we don't reach many of those people and if we don't grow as a result. People are precious to God. And when we truly encounter the love of Christ and understand his grace expressed to us at the cross, that he died in our place, when we realize how much he loved us and what he's done for us, then surely we'll be desperate for other people to experience what we have, to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, to be in relationship with a God who created them and loved them so much that he died in their place. Last week we had our Father's Day service, and one of our regulars here at Follow, who recently became a Christian, brought their dad along to the service. And it was really awesome, after the service, having a chat to this guy. He hadn't been in church for years, perhaps decades, And it was just a really great moment to chat to him about his experience at church that day. And he talked about how much he loved it and it was different to what he expected. And and I was pondering that this week as I was walking the dog. And I, I considered something that I've considered many times before. And that is this, that it seems to me that new converts seem to be the best evangelists. Why is that? Well, Because they've had a fresh revelation of salvation. And they're so gripped by that that they can't wait to share it with everybody else. I think that's a great challenge for us more mature Christians to be people who return to our first love and get a fresh vision of Christ on the cross 
and start to reimagine how much he must have loved us to hang there in our place so that our love for people would start to reflect the love of Christ showed to us at the cross. If we don't have a deep love for people, we'll never step out in faith. We'll never sacrifice. We'll never take risks. We'll never share our faith, but instead we'll comfortably take our golden ticket and wait for the giant Willy Wonka in the sky to come and grant us access to the heavenly chocolate factory when Jesus returns. I'm probably not selling it that well, am I? Because that sounds pretty good. But if we get so comfortable in our own salvation that we're not desperate about people, then we'll never do those things. But when we understand Christ's love for us, we'll do all those things and more in order to see people saved. I remember about three years ago, I said to Kim one day, do you know what I love most about ministry? And she said, what? And I said, people. And I said, do you know what drives me nuts most about ministry? She said, what? And I said, same answer. <laughs> you know, it's easy in ministry and it's easy in life and it's easy in faith to kind of grow tired of people. But 1 Thessalonians 2 is a reminder from Paul's life and example of how precious people are. I've heard pastors say, I love preaching the word. I just don't really like people. (laughs) I've heard other pastors who don't say it, but by the way they live their life, it's pretty obvious that they don't love the people that they're ministering to. And I think perhaps they've missed their calling. You know, maybe they should be lecturing in a Bible college or on a factory floor, an accountant or something else. Um, I don't know why you chose accountant, but anyway, some great accountants here. (laughs) We love you. You're great people. And I'm sure you'll have a great impact for the gospel and all that sort of stuff. Just digging my way out of this hole. Sorry, I couldn't hear that. Um, But they shouldn't be pastoring. That's enough. That's enough. But instead, perhaps, they should be doing something else because surely a prerequisite of a pastor or a shepherd or even a leader in God's church is that we must care about people. I was so encouraged and challenged as I studied this chapter during the week. And as a pastor, I want to hold this chapter up as a mirror in my own life. And as a Christian today, I'd encourage you to hold this up as a mirror in your life as well. And I started to ask questions about what reflected back at me. And I started to ponder the question, do I love people the way Paul loved people? Do I love people the way Christ loved people? And if the answer to that question is no, then Holy Spirit, I need your help. Help me to love people the way you do. Help me to reflect your love in the spheres of influence I find myself in. I love Paul's heart for people. I'm sure it wasn't easy for him. In fact, if anyone should have been disillusioned with people, then surely it's Paul. He's been in Philippi where he's been illegally beaten, falsely accused, thrown in prison. He was driven out of town. He lands at Thessalonica. And then we read in this passage, he also faces strong opposition here. And yet he desperately wants to help people from this deep love. And yet people keep letting him down. But despite that, all we see is his deep love of people continuing to grow. Paul's very clearly not in it for selfish reasons as he's been accused. There were many ancient philosophers who were accused in a similar way, and the accusation was that they were appealing to new converts so that they would be respected and therefore they'd be paid high fees for their service. But Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter to defend himself against such accusations. In verse 3, if you're following along, he says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. 
You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day, probably as tent makers or leather workers. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul clearly is not the one who has the wrong motivations. In fact, it's the very Jews that are accusing him who have the wrong motivations. You can read more of the background in Acts chapter 17, but when you read there, you'll find out that the Jews were causing trouble for Paul and his companions simply because they were jealous. Paul goes further here, and he highlights the sinfulness of these Jews in verse 14. He says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in order to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And so they persecuted the prophets, they killed Jesus, and now they're driving Paul and his companions out of town as well. Paul, in this chapter, is making a case for their motivations. He's defending their work as work that was not done for selfish gain, but it was done because of their love for the gospel and because of their heart for people. His heart for people is on show in this chapter for all to see. Paul is a pastor's pastor. This is pastoral language where we read about how he has loved and served the people in this church at Thessalonica. Now, in his other letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, he showed that he was willing to do anything to reach people. Let me read to you from chapter 9. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself, I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do so, all of this, for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You'll notice that once again with the Thessalonians, Paul is willing to be all things to all people. In verse 7, he describes himself as like a young child amongst them. In other words, he's dealt with them with great innocence, childlike faith. In verse 9, he says, I was like a nursing mother. In other words, I fed and cared and nurtured you. He said, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And then in verse 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so at times he was like a gentle child with them in Thessalonica. Other times he was like a nursing mother. And at other times he was like an inspiring father depending on what these precious people needed in any particular circumstance. I love how adaptable he is that he'll do whatever it takes to love and care for these people. And I wonder if we love people around us as much as Paul did. In the face of strong opposition, 
in the light of unfair accusations, in the midst of toil and hardship, his love for the gospel and his love for people remained. And as he persevered in all of this, fruit was produced. His faithfulness outworked in accompanied fruitfulness. Verse 13, he says, We always thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that's faithfulness, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe, that's fruitfulness. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Here is the fruit of our labor, that people would be saved and that people would grow in the gospel. A number of years ago, I heard a story, and I was reminded of it recently over coffee with Craig. There was a story of a man called Frank Jenner. Some of you may have heard this story before, but Frank Jenner was a man who had high hopes for his life. And his hopes were that he would be used by God to help reach his city. His story starts in a small Baptist church in England. It was a Sunday night service, and the pastor, Francis Dixon, asked a young man from his church to share his testimony. This young guy's name was Peter Culver. And he got up and he shared that when he was with the Royal Navy, he had been posted in Sydney, Australia. And one day when he was walking down George Street, a man came out of nowhere and asked him the question, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Then he said, would you think about that, please? Thank you and God bless. And then he left as quick as he came. It leaves him hanging with this eternal question to consider. Peter Culver said he couldn't get that question out of his mind. And so he returned to England and a short time later became a Christian. Sometime later, in the same small church in England, they had a youth night with a visiting mission team. And one of the missionaries, a guy called Noel, shared his testimony. And he started by saying, I used to serve in the Royal Navy and I was posted in Sydney, Australia. And I was walking down George Street. And guess what? The same guy came and asked the same question. And it bothered me for months. And when I returned to England, I caught up with a Christian friend. I asked him some questions. We discussed it, and he led me to Christ, and I've been serving him as a missionary for the last few years. A while later, Francis Dixon, the pastor from this small church in the UK, was visiting Australia on a preaching tour, and he started in Adelaide. And as part of his sermon, he told the story of these two young men and how they'd been saved through the ministry of this man on George Street, Sydney. And as he was halfway through the story, a man stood up at the back of the church and he yelled out in a loud voice, I'm another one. He said, I was on a tram in George Street when a man behind me called out, hey, wait. And he said, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And I said, I think heaven. And he says, no good thinking, you need to know. And two weeks later, I became Christian. Francis continued his preaching tour and the next stop was Perth. He told the story and another young man said that he too had been saved after a conversation on George Street. Francis Dixon at this stage couldn't wait to get to Sydney. He wanted to meet this man on George Street. And so he said to his host, do you know this man on George Street? And he said, yes, I know him well. His name's Frank Jenner and I can take you to meet him. And so they turned up at this humble little home that Frank lived in with his wife. And he started telling Francis, or Francis started telling um, Frank the story And as he started telling the story of these four young men, Frank Jenner started to weep. And he said, for 16 years, I've been telling people about Jesus. And this is the first time I've ever heard of any lasting fruit. The next few years, Francis Dixon preached right throughout the world. And each time he told this story. In the UK at a pastor's conference, he met a pastor saved through Frank's ministry. 
In India, he met a man who had visited, visited Sydney just once and had encountered Frank on George Street, Sydney, and was now in ministry. At a missionary conference in Jamaica, two missionaries came forward and said that they too had been saved after encountering Frank Jenner on the streets of Sydney. His impact was bearing fruit and achieving results right around the world, and he didn't even know it. I thought to myself this week, what could possibly keep a guy like Frank Jenner going for 16 years with no apparent results? Well, it's the same thing that kept Paul going around the world through opposition, persecution, famine, prison, shipwrecks, beatings, floggings, danger. It was a deep love of the gospel. And it was a heart full of love for people. Verse 17, listen to how it finishes. He says, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. We often appear to live our lives finding glory and joy in the things of this world. Our sporting achievements, our bank account, our success, our reputations, our vacations, our stuff. But not Paul. His love was for the gospel. His affection was for people because the results were not temporal. They were eternal. He has this intense longing. It says he made every effort to see them because he knew that the only thing that he can take with him to eternity is people. He can't take any of the stuff with him. Therefore, in Philippians 3, he refers to it all as garbage, stuff that's useless, that's going to be thrown away one day, completely useless to me. He knew that the only thing he could take was people. I heard a story, maybe it's a joke, I'm not sure, but a few years ago there was a man who had worked all his life and saved all his money, and he was a real cheapskate when it came to his money. He loved money more than just about anything else. And just before he died, he said to his wife, now listen, when I die, I want you to take all the money out of our bank and place it in the casket with me because I want to take all my money to the afterlife. So he got his wife to promise with all of her heart that when she died, she'd put all the money in the casket with him. And then one day he died. He was stretched out in the casket. The wife was sitting there in black next to her best friend. And when they finished the ceremony, just before the undertakers got ready to close the casket, she said, wait. She had a shoebox with her. And she came over with the box and she placed it in the casket. And then the undertakers locked the casket and they rolled it away. She went back to her seat and her friend sitting next to her said, I hope you weren't crazy enough to put all that money in there with that stingy old man. She said, yes. I promise, I'm a good Christian, I can't lie. I promised him that I would put all the money in the casket with him. She says, you mean to tell me that you put every cent of the money in the casket with him? I sure did, she said. I got it all together, I put it in my bank account, and I wrote him a check. (laughs) When he gets to the afterlife, he can cash it, I'm sure. It seems like a crazy story, doesn't it? But it highlights how crazy it is to spend our lives chasing the things that one day won't mean a single thing. They'll be garbage because we can't take them with us. The only thing we can take with us is people. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. 
Father, we have an incredible opportunity and an immense responsibility to long for people, to make every effort to reach them, to not see them as numbers, but to see them as people who are precious. And I feel so convicted that we often don't live our lives like what we say we believe is actually true. If we were this week watching a bunch of people walk towards the end of the edge of a cliff, oblivious of what was about to happen to them, if we saw a bunch of people walking in front of a semi-trailer on the M1, if we saw a blind person walking into a fire, we would do everything we could to save them. We would warn them with all of our hearts. And if we didn't, if we just watched it, that would be incredibly cruel. And yet spiritually, this is exactly what's happening. There are people all around us, and they are heading for eternal separation from God, lost in their sin. The Bible calls it hell. We have the answer. It's Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It was Jesus on the cross who paid the price for our sins, dying in our place so that we could once again come back into relationship with our heavenly Father. That's the answer. And yet so often we simply live our lives obsessed by chasing the things that ultimately will count for nothing. You might think, well, that's okay for you, Luke, but I'm not an evangelist. Well, the good news for you is that this chapter is not primarily about evangelism. The letter's written to people because of the results of evangelism. They exist in Christ because of the evangelism that's already been done. This chapter is written because Paul is desperate to see these people continue in their faith to the end. You see, putting your faith in Jesus is not the end of the journey. It's the start of the most life-changing journey you could ever be on. It's just the start. It's the beginning. It's a journey that will have its highs and it will have its lows, but it's critical that we persevere to the end. Paul was concerned with the whole Christian life, from conversion to the casket to the consummation. In other words, he wants people to accept Jesus, to live their lives for him, to be known by Jesus and for him to know them. So that one day, as the next chapter tells us, we will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when Jesus returns. From conversion to the casket to that great day, the consummation in Christ. If there's one thing that keeps me up at night as a pastor, it's that some people who are hearing my voice right now, either here or on the podcast, won't continue in their faith. Jesus says the love of most will grow cold. I want you to look around today. Look to your right and to your left. You can do it now. Look in front of you, look behind you. Some of you haven't got the hang of this. (laughs) Look around you today. You're surrounded by people who are precious. There's not one person here who's not important. There's not one person on this planet who's not loved deeply by God the Father and so deeply by God the Son that he wouldn't give his life for them. The great danger is that we can be distracted by all the other stuff. We can have a nice building, we can run great programs, we can produce slick marketing, have a nice website. But if we don't love each other, it really counts for nothing. I want to encourage you today to consider how you can help each other to persevere and to grow in your faith, not just hi, bye on a weekend, see you next weekend, but to really care for one another, to really be in each other's lives. Because what you're surrounded by today is the most precious resource that we have. If I had to choose real quick, All the stuff, all the people, I choose people. I pray and I hope with all my heart that we will love the gospel enough that people will be our hope, our joy and our crown. And that one day many who are right now separated from God will be reconciled to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in them and through us 
And then each of us will continue to follow Jesus until the end. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to give opportunity to anyone here today that's never accepted Christ as their Lord and Saviour, or perhaps you have and you've walked away. Today I want you to know that regardless of what you think of yourself, regardless of where you've been or what you've done, in God's eyes you are absolutely precious. He loves you so much that he gave his son to die on the cross for you. That if you would put your faith in him, you can be forgiven of all the things you've done wrong. You can come relationship, back into relationship with God the Father and you can spend eternity in his glorious presence. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to have been a great person. All you need to do is put your faith in Christ. And as you put your faith in Christ, it's the start of the most exciting journey you can ever be on. And so today, maybe you're here and it's not by accident. Maybe today God's challenging you through his word today and by his spirit that you need to know him. You need to come to Christ and accept him as your Lord and Saviour. And so while there's nobody looking around today, while every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ or you want to come back to him this morning, just to lift your hands and say, Luke, that's me. You're precious to him. You're not a number. He loves you. He's given everything for you. Is there anyone here this morning that says, Luke, yeah, I want to start that journey. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I'd love to pray with you at the end of the service. If you're listening on the podcast today, I'd love you to just bow your head and and to ask Jesus to come into your life, to be your Lord and Saviour. And today could be the great start of an amazing journey. I'm going to ask one more time before I close. If there's anyone here today that says, Luke, yep, I want to take that step. I don't understand it all, but today I want to exercise faith in Christ and know him. Is there anyone here today at all? Lord Jesus, I thank you for and the vast majority of people here today that have put their faith in you. And I pray for those in our lives that don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would burn a passionate desire in our hearts for those that right now are lost. They're separated from you. And I pray, Lord God, that we would point people back to you, that they would know the gospel, that not just know it in their head, but they'd understand it in their heart. Lord, I pray for those that are Christians here today already, that we would love each other, that we would see each other as precious, not just numbers, that we would journey with one another, that we would encourage, rebuke, inspire at different times, that we would be all things to all people and see, in order to see people saved and to see people to continue to grow in their faith. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.